Let us pray together. Father, even as the light led the wise men to the light, even as the glory in the sky led them to the glory in the manger, so may we be led to Christ Jesus today. For he is our hope, he is our salvation, he is our king, he is our savior. Father, would you preach this good news about your son to us today, that we might be strengthened and equipped for the battles you call us to fight. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy. We looked at that back during the Advent season. Uh, the first part of Matthew 1, where Matthew gives this list of names, this lengthy uh, genealogy, 42 generations in all, establishes the human ancestry of Jesus Christ. To sum it up, he is son of David and son of Abraham. He is the true Israelite. He is the true Israel. That's Matthew 1, 1 to 17. We see the humanity of Jesus. Then in Matthew 1, 18 to 25, we see the deity of Jesus. Just as Matthew has shown us the true manhood, now he will show us the true godhood of Jesus. Matthew there tells us in the second half of chapter 1, he tells us about the miraculous conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Jesus does not have an earthly biological father. He is the eternal son of God the Father. Yes, he is adopted by Joseph. Joseph will raise him. He's incorporated into the family line of Joseph. But Joseph did not beget him. Jesus has a divine origin. And so there we see his deity in the virgin birth. And so in Matthew's gospel, in the opening chapter, he demonstrates the identity of Jesus, the the personhood of Jesus. He is Israel and Israel's God. He is God and man. Rolled together, two natures in one person. He is Mary's son and God's son. God is his father and Joseph is his father. In chapter 2, Matthew uh, begins to show us more why Jesus came. Having established who he is, now we will begin to see why Jesus came. Why God sent his son. What he came to accomplish. What his mission is. And how does Matthew show us this? Well, he shows us this in the visit of the wise men, these magi who come to visit him from the east. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea while King Herod ruled. And magi, wise men from the east, came to visit him. Now, who were these magi? Who are the wise men? They most likely came from the region of Babylon. And if you go back to the Old Testament, if you go back to the book of Daniel, uh, a little over 500 years before Christ's birth, we find the prophet Daniel serving in the Babylonian Empire. He is a righteous man serving in a pagan empire. Uh, He had been taken to the east, taken to Babylon in exile, Uh, with numerous other Jews, and there he served faithfully, and he rose through the ranks to become a great leader in Babylon and exerted a great deal of influence there, and he made a great many disciples. Daniel made a lot of disciples in Babylon, especially in the royal court where he served. And it is likely that these wise men, you know, now we're 500 plus years later, it is likely that these wise men are the spiritual descendants of Daniel's converts. 
Uh, they are what the Bible calls Gentile God-fearers. Gentiles in the Old Covenant who worship Israel's God. They remain Gentiles. They don't become Jews, but they become worshipers of Israel's God. And so therefore, they would have known from Daniel's teaching that God had promised to send a Messiah for the whole world, a king, a seed of the woman who would come and crush the serpent's head, who would bring victory, who would bring redemption, who would usher in a kingdom for the whole world, who would become the ruler over all. And perhaps they even knew to look for some kind of sign. And so when this sign, the star, appeared, they followed it to Jerusalem. They said, now is the time. We must make our journey to Jerusalem to worship this newborn king. And so they come to Jerusalem and they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Well, what is Herod's response to this? What is Jerusalem's response to this? Matthew tells us Herod and all Jerusalem are troubled by this. Now, why would Herod be troubled by this news? The the arrival of these wise men, these royal figures from the east, inquiring about a king. Well, Herod has claimed to be king himself. He has claimed to be king over the Jews. And he realizes that this new king will be a threat to the status quo. This new king will be a threat to his own kingship. He realizes there's not going to be room in Israel for both of them. There's not room for two kings of Israel. And so we know, of course, what that will ultimately lead Herod to do uh, later in Matthew chapter 2. We didn't read it, but of course he does seek to wipe out Jesus by wiping out all the baby boys. He has the baby boys in the Bethlehem area in that vicinity slaughtered in a futile attempt to destroy the baby king, the baby Jesus. Now, Herod, despite being the supposed king of the Jews for 40 years, does not know the Jewish scriptures very well. That's obvious. He's got to uh, call together a team of scholars. He's got to assemble this team of scholars made up of the chief priests and the scribes, and he asks them, where is the Messiah to be born? What do the scriptures say? What have they prophesied about this coming king? Now, notice a couple things here. Uh, many in Israel knew that God was planning to send the Messiah right about this time. Not just that the Messiah would come, but they knew to expect the Messiah sometime soon at this point in history. And they were eagerly awaiting the arrival of the Messiah. Think about Simeon and Anna in Luke chapter 2, who clearly had messianic expectations, clearly expecting God to to send his Messiah at any moment now. Also notice this, while Herod doesn't know much about the scriptures, he does know this. He does know that the promised king and the promised Messiah are one and the same. The Magi had asked about a king, but then Herod asks his scholars about the Messiah. And so Herod understands rightly that the king and Messiah are one and the same. Messiah means anointed one. It's the same word as Christ. Christ is the Greek. Messiah is Hebrew. Uh, It means anointed one. And of course, kings are anointed figures. So Herod at least knows the king and the magi are looking for is the Messiah. The one who will not only rule over Israel, but who will fulfill God's promise of salvation, God's promise of global redemption. The Messiah will be an eternal king. His throne is forever. He will bring in the kingdom of God. 
Herod can at least make that much of a connection. This king they're asking about is the promised Messiah. And notice, too, how politically textured this whole passage is. How heavily weighted it is with political themes. The gospel is public truth. The gospel of the king is public truth. You can't just say, well, it's true for me. You know, you've got your truth. I've got my truth. My truth is the gospel. You find your own truth. No, there's there's none of that here. The gospel of the king is public truth. It bears upon the public and political life of the nations. The Magi didn't come looking for a personal savior, but a public king. Now, of course, he is a personal savior too, but he's a personal savior who has power to save us because he rules over all things as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He has power to save us personally because he is the cosmic king God promised to send. We need to be careful that we don't privatize this message of the gospel, that we don't privatize what Jesus came to do. This hymn, one of the hymns we sang this morning, it's kind of the classic epiphany hymn, when Christ's appearing was made known. This hymn goes all the way back to the 5th century. It's a 1,500-year-old hymn. But notice there in that uh, first verse what it says about King Herod. King Herod trembled for his throne, but he who offers heavenly birth seeks not the kingdoms of this earth. I think that line could be easily misunderstood. Uh, it, it, what, what does that line mean? It means that Christ is not just another earthly king like Herod, a king who will rule on Herod's plane in the same way as Herod. Jesus is not just a a new and better Herod. He's not just a new and better Caesar. That's what a lot of Jews seem to have been expecting. No, his kingdom is not of this world. So he doesn't seek the kingdoms of this world in a worldly way, but he does seek the kingdoms of this world in another way. And there are other scriptures that make that clear. Think about Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says that this promised son, this Messiah, this king, will ask his father to give him the nations as his inheritance. In the Great Commission, he commands us to make disciples, not merely of individuals, but of nations. Nations are geopolitical realities. Nations as nations are to be discipled. Revelation 11 describes a time when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And so the gospel is to bear not only upon our own individual lives and our own individual experiences, the gospel is to bear upon the public and political life of the world. And I I hate to say it, but we are seeing in our land right now what happens when a church fails to disciple the nation in which it lives. What happens when when the church settles for a privatized gospel? It doesn't seek to live out the implications and apply the implications of the gospel to all of life. Well, you see what's going on all around us in our culture, in our nation right now. The state of the culture is the church's report card. The condition of the culture is the church's report card. And right now, we are getting a failing grade in being salt and light. We've simply failed in our mission. The salt has lost its saltiness. The light has been hidden under a bushel. We need to understand idolatrous cultures, sexually rebellious cultures, cultures that don't know what marriage is or what a man is or what a woman is, statist cultures, uh, cultures that look to the the state, to the government, 
to, to, to provide all of these benefits and to essentially save them. Those kinds of cultures can never thrive. The only way for a culture to thrive is to live in harmony with God's will as it's revealed in his word and in Christ Jesus. And so the church has to teach those things and the church has to model those things. But all too often the church in our land has been part of the problem, not pointing to the solution. We've got to see the gospel has public effects. There's a, there's a public and political dimension to this message. And Herod, again, at least got that. He understood rightly that Jesus was a rival to his throne, that things could not stay the same if this new king has arrived. Now, Herod's team of scholars is able to answer his question. Uh, they answer his question with a quotation from Micah chapter 5, because God had declared long before where the Messiah would be born. God had prophesied it, and everything is unfolding according to this script. And so you have this quotation from Micah chapter 5. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, it's interesting, this passage in Micah chapter 5 sheds additional light on who Jesus is and what he's come to do. We've got additional titles given for Jesus here. He's ruler and he is shepherd. In fact, if you go back and you read that portion of Micah 5 that's quoted there in Matthew 2, if you go back and you read the whole passage, which really you should always do because... When the New Testament cites the Old Testament, it might just cite a few verses, but the whole context back in the Old Testament matters. So Micah 5 as a whole really is important to understanding this. If you go back to Micah 5, we find that this shepherd in Israel is also described as one whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, or we could say from the beginning. Think about how John starts his gospel. In the beginning, in the beginning was the word. This is another allusion to the dual nature of Christ. He's a shepherd, he's a man, but he's also from the beginning, from ancient days, he is God. He's the eternal God entering into human history as a man, as a shepherd. And then actually it says in Micah 5 verse 4 that this Messiah will be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. So he will be born in Bethlehem, but his reign will not be limited to the area around Bethlehem or even to the realm of Judea. He will rule to the ends of the earth. He will be great to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. He will be the world's peace, that shalom that the world longs for. That shalom, that peace, will be found in this one that God sends, this son, this shepherd, this ruler. Now, what's interesting about this is that the Messiah is born in Bethlehem. And, of course, our associations with Bethlehem, because of Jesus' birth there, are entirely positive. We think about hymns like, O Little Town of Bethlehem, uh, or we think about Bethlehem um, being referred to in uh, Christmas pageants and that kind of thing. We have a very positive view of Bethlehem now because of Jesus' birth there. But up to this point in history... Israel, uh, Bethlehem, did not have a very positive reputation in Israel. This prophecy about Bethlehem is kind of surprising in a way because so many bad things have happened in Bethlehem up to this point in history. If you go back into the book of Genesis, Bethlehem is the place where Jacob's wife, Rachel, died in childbirth. It's not a place of a glorious birth. It's a place of a mother's death. 
Then there were the gruesome events of Judges 19, where a Levite, a priestly figure from Bethlehem, leaves his concubine to be raped and murdered. He does not do his job as a husband to his wife or a husband in the land of Israel. She's raped and murdered, and then he cuts her body into pieces and sends them out. It's, it's really a gruesome story. Those are the kinds of associations with Bethlehem they would have had. Then there's the book of Ruth, where there is a famine in the land, and so Elimelech has to take his family out of Bethlehem and go to the pagan land of Moab in search of bread, and that is all the more ironic because the name Bethlehem means house of bread. The bread basket is empty. This is supposed to be a place of bread, the bread basket of Israel, and it's empty. There's no bread in the house of bread. Those are the kinds of associations they would have had with Bethlehem up to this point. A place of a mother dying, a place of, a, of an apostate priest, a place of famine. People in Israel did not have a lot of fond memories of Bethlehem. It was associated with death and with the curse. But then out of nowhere comes this prophecy in Micah chapter 5 that this little town of Bethlehem will be honored as the birthplace of the promised Messiah, the promised king, the ruler and the shepherd God will send. And this is one of God's great reversals. This is God's pattern again and again and again. This lowly town of Bethlehem will become greatly honored as the birthplace of the Messiah. God sent his Messiah not to be born in a royal palace or in a royal city like Jerusalem or one of the other great cities of the ancient world. No, Jesus was born in a a lowly place, a lowly city, a town that has a history of pain and brokenness. Why does God do it this way? He sends his son into the world in Bethlehem because he comes in humility. And he sends him to a place full of pain and brokenness because he comes to heal that pain and that brokenness. To reverse all that had gone wrong in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a place where the curses had been fully realized. Jesus comes to make the blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Now, what led the wise men to Judea? A star. Matthew tells us. And the star really is the star of the show here. This is really the centerpiece of this story. And you'll even notice I titled this sermon, The Epiphany Star. Now you might think, Epiphany Star, isn't it the Christmas star? And it is true. During the season of Christmas, we see the star all over the place. The star is a very ubiquitous symbol uh, during the Advent and Christmas season because we associate it with Jesus' birth probably the signature symbol of the season of Christmas uh, in a lot of ways because that star shined at Jesus' birth. But it also belongs with the season of Epiphany because remember, Epiphany means manifestation or revelation. The star manifests to these Gentile wise men who Jesus is. The star announces his birth and his identity, just like his baptism and his first miracle go a long way in revealing his identity. So this star goes a long way in revealing his glory. And so actually a lot of the great epiphany hymns, traditionally, uh, are hymns about the star, brightest and best, that we sang this morning, or when Christ's appearing was made known, that talks about the star. And so we could say this, chronologically, the star belongs with Christmas. Thematically, the star belongs with epiphany. 
Chronologically, it belongs with Christmas because it does appear at the time of his birth. But thematically, it belongs with Epiphany because it has to do with manifesting or revealing who Jesus is. Now, what is this star? Well, some have suggested it was some kind of natural phenomenon, uh, like a comet or perhaps a conjunction of planets. Uh, In fact, just this past December, we got a a rare... um, astronomical treat as Saturn and Jupiter got very, very close uh, in the sky. It's very unusual for that to happen. It's a very rare occurrence. If you got to see it, it was actually pretty remarkable uh, to see Saturn and Jupiter uh, so close. Some people suggest uh, have suggested that the star was something like that, maybe some kind of conjunction of the planets. And we know that there were such events around 6 and 7 B.C., uh, again, around 3 or 4 B.C., so roughly close to the time when Jesus was born. There were interesting uh, events in the sky like this, and so some will say, well, this must be the star uh, of Matthew chapter 2. Others have suggested it's a comet or some kind of supernova. But I think there are insurmountable problems with all of those theories about the identity of the star. Note that the star, whatever it was, had not been seen by Herod or by his counselors. Now, if there was some kind of really special or unique phenomenon in the sky, they would have been aware of this, but they were not. They were not aware of some kind of astronomical event. Further, the star, the way the text actually describes it, the star went before the wise men and then stood over the place where the child was in verse 9. It goes before them and then it stands over the place where the child is. That can't be some natural phenomenon. There's no way that a star could lead them in that kind of way or then stand over a particular house in that kind of way. So it can't be something natural. It must be something supernatural or we would say miraculous. Now think about this. What kind of light sign, what kind of heavenly light sign could communicate to the wise men that the promised Jewish king is about to be born? And then what kind of heavenly light sign could go before them to just the right place and then stand over that place? Well, to understand this, we have to go back to the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, we find there was a very special light that went before people and that stood over a place. And it did this many times, going before people and standing over a particular place. And that very special light is sometimes called the Shekinah, or sometimes it's called the glory of God. It's this visible manifestation of God's presence. And when you look back at the Old Testament, you find that this Shekinah glory light went before the people of Israel in the Exodus. It led them through the wilderness and it appeared as a pillar of fire during the night and a pillar of cloud by day. And what's interesting is several times Moses uses the same language for that Shekinah, for that appearance of God's glory, that Matthew uses for the star. Or maybe what we should really say is Matthew picks up on the language of Moses so that there won't be any confusion about what this star is. Matthew says the star went before them and stood over the place. Listen to these references from the Old Testament about the Shekinah glory. Exodus 13, 21. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night as a pillar of fire to give them light 
Exodus 33.9, the pillar of cloud stood above the entrance to the tabernacle. Numbers 12.5, the pillar, again, stood above the tabernacle. Numbers 14.14, the cloud stands over and goes before them. Deuteronomy 31.15, the Lord appeared uh, at, at the, um, as a pillar of cloud, and a, and a pillar of cloud stood over the entrance to the tabernacle. Okay, you catch that language again and again. Those verbs that are used of the star in Matthew 2.9, that it goes before and then stands over. Those same verbs are used again and again of the Lord's glory, of this Shekinah, as we call it, in the Old Testament. Not only that, but pretty much everybody agrees that the visit of the Magi in Matthew 2, that Matthew tells this story in such a way as to show that Isaiah chapter 60 is coming to fulfillment. Matthew 2 fulfills Isaiah 60. Well, what do we find in Isaiah 60? Listen to this language, and this is, again, a classic epiphany passage. Arise, shine, for your light has come. So you've got this light arising. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations, that is Gentiles, shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So these Gentiles and these kings will follow the light into the kingdom. The wealth of nations shall come to you on a multitude of camels. They shall come bringing gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. You see, there's all kinds of connections between that passage in Isaiah 60 and Matthew chapter 2. You've got glory arising and shining, even as the Magi saw the star arise. The wise men bring wealth. They bring the wealth of the nations to Jesus and Isaiah 60 even mentions gold and frankincense as the gifts that are brought. We're not told in Matthew's gospel that the wise men rode on camels, but Isaiah 60 apparently fills in that detail for us, telling us that these Gentile rulers would come uh, riding upon camels. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, Isaiah calls the visitors from the east kings. Matthew calls them magi. The magi may have been kings, but if they weren't Technically kings, they were certainly members of a royal court and therefore representatives of kings. So you could use that kind of language. These are kingly figures in Matthew's gospel. It all fits. Matthew 2 and Isaiah 60, they fit together. But what is the shining light in Isaiah chapter 60? It's that glory of the Lord. It's the revelation, the appearance of God's glory. That's the star that appeared to them in the east. It was the glory of the Lord, the same glory that appeared to the Israelites in the wilderness that led them to the uh, promised land, the same glory that stood over the tabernacle and then filled it, that later stood over the temple and then filled the temple. And what this story is showing us is that glory is now found in Jesus. He is the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord stands over him. Matthew is showing us how Jesus and the Hebrew scriptures fit together. Everything God had trained his people to expect, everything God trained his people to look for is found in Jesus. We find Jesus is revealed in the Old Testament and we find the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is revealed ahead of time in the Old Testament and in the fullness of time we find Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament. Jesus is in the Old Testament and the Old Testament is in Jesus. 
In fact, there's another interesting connection here. I realize this is kind of Bible hopscotch today, but uh, I think this kind of Bible study is good for us. There's another connection to be made here between what Matthew says and the prophet Ezekiel. So think about the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a prophet, again, who's about the same time as Daniel. They're contemporaries. And Ezekiel announces that the people of Judah will be taken away in exile to the east because of their sin, because of their idolatry. He even has a vision where basically he sees the priests worshiping idols in the temple in the most holy place. And so because of this sin that is staying the nation, they must be sent into exile as punishment. The curses of the covenant will fall upon them. But the Lord also comforts them through the prophet Ezekiel. The Lord shows them through Ezekiel's prophecy that he will be present with them in exile. That the glory of the Lord will go before them and and even prepare a place for them in exile. And so in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of his prophecy, Ezekiel sees all of this. He sees the glory of the Lord that had stood over the tabernacle and filled it, that then stood over the temple and filled it. He sees that glory of the Lord that dwelt between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. He sees the glory of the Lord basically pack up his bags and move out because the time has come. Israel is, is in such deep sin. The glory of the Lord that dwelt in the temple in the most holy place leaves the temple. And which direction does it head? It heads east. Again, going ahead of the people, preparing a place for them in Babylon. The glory of the Lord moves out of the holy place and into the outer court of the temple in chapter 10. In chapter 11, it moves east of Jerusalem. And you see that the glory of the Lord is exiled. And the people of Judah will not be far behind. And that means that when the people are exiled into Babylon, the glory of the Lord will be with them there in some sense. But then this is what's interesting. Does the glory ever come back? Well, it's interesting. Ezekiel, later on in the book, gives prophecies about the return from exile. Uh, Perhaps not the full return from exile, but a return from exile. In Ezekiel 43, as Ezekiel is describing the renewed temple, remember the temple had been destroyed, Ezekiel has these visions of a rebuilt, restored, glorified temple. In Ezekiel chapter 43, the glory of the Lord returns from the east and moves into the new temple. And just like always, it's it's moving from the east and... um, comes into the temple and takes up residence there, just like this Shekinah glory had moved into the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of Solomon. So it is with Ezekiel's temple. Now this is the thing. Remember, 70 years after Ezekiel and Daniel and other Jews were exiled, there was a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. You can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. But those books do not record any visible manifestation of the glory of the Lord moving into that temple. And remember from the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew says the exile actually lasted until the Christ. 14 generations from the exile to the Christ. So even though the temple was rebuilt and the people did return, many of them did return to Jerusalem, that really wasn't the end of the exile. So when does the exile end? When does the glory return from exile in the east? Well, here in Matthew 2 is the story of the return from exile. The glory that had been exiled to the east, now returning back to the land of Judea. 
Matthew chapter 2 records it. This is the glory of the Lord leading the Magi through the wilderness to the new temple, now seen to be Jesus leading the Magi in what can be considered a new exodus. Just as the glory led the people and stood above the tabernacle in ancient Israel's history, so it is here with the Magi. Matthew chapter 2 fulfills Ezekiel 43, the return of the glory, the end of the glory's exile, the new exodus in Jesus. But there's still another further question here we have to ask, a question you may be wondering about. If this star is the glory in Matthew 2, why doesn't Matthew just say so? Why does he call the glory a star? Well, again, here, we've got to see how the Bible links these things together. If you go back to those Old Testament passages in Exodus and Numbers, passages that describe the glory of the Lord in the pillar of cloud and fire, they associate that glory with what is called the angel of the Lord. That glory is associated with the angel of the Lord. That glory of the Lord and the angel of the Lord go together. Sometimes scripture says the glory led them. Other times it says the angel of the Lord led them. It seems that they are interchangeable. That somehow the the glory of the Lord manifest in that pillar of cloud and fire is also a manifestation of the angel of the Lord. And further, in other places in the Old Testament, angels are associated with stars at least symbolically. At least symbolically, there is a link between angels and stars. And you know this because, you know what, every year uh, I know a lot of families that have a debate. What should we put on the top of the tree this year? Should we put the angel there or should we put the star there? And you know what, either one works. Either one works because they really reveal the same thing. The angel and the star go together. They're associated. In Job chapter 38, at creation, we're told the morning stars sang. But in context, those singing stars are actually angels. Angels are like living stars. In scripture, the language of the heavenly host can refer to the stars of heaven or to the angels of heaven. We sang a hymn this morning that links stars with angels, brightest and best. Links stars and angels together. In fact, consider what happens if you put the stories of Christ's birth from Matthew 2 and Luke 2 together. Matthew 2 and Luke 2 are recording the same event, but with different perspectives. But think about this. What do you get if you put them together? Well, in Luke chapter 2, the glory star appears to the shepherds. Those shepherds, those Jewish shepherds were watching their flocks at night. Suddenly, we're told, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and announced the good news. And then we're told the glory of the Lord shone all around them. The angel appears and then with it the glory. And I believe that angel glory in Luke 2 that appeared to the shepherds is the star that appeared to the wise men. It is the same manifestation of glory, the same manifestation of the angel It is the star Matthew is describing. In fact, I think it's entirely possible that the wise men, as they were making their journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, perhaps the wise men saw this star appear in the night sky near Bethlehem as the uh, the star, as the heavens broke open and this glory shone all around and the angels made this announcement to the shepherds in Bethlehem. Perhaps the wise men saw that from a distance. And they were seeing from a distance what the shepherds were getting to see close up right there. And I think it's very likely, therefore, that the shepherds and the magi were both there the night of Christ's birth. 
And so if your manger scene has got the shepherds and the wise men all there together, gathered around with the Holy Family, gathered around baby Jesus, I think that is exactly right. And uh, maybe then you should have Herod's soldiers a little further off in the distance, but they're coming to the story too. I mean, not, not quite yet, but they're on their way. What happened? The shepherds and the magi both followed the glory in the sky to the glory in the manger. The light in the sky pointed them to the light in the manger, the light of the world. Well, let me wrap this up with just a few, I guess you could call these observations or applications, just further things to think about that I think bear upon our lives from this story. First, consider this. With the Jewish shepherds and the Gentile magi, both gathering to worship Jesus in the manger, we can say that Jesus was already bringing Jew and Gentile together into one family from the very moment of his birth. From the very day of his birth, he's already incorporating Jew and Gentile into one new family that will worship him. Matthew drops several hints along the way in his gospel about Jesus' mission how Jesus' mission will include Gentiles, how he will will include Gentiles in his new Israel, this new Israel he is forming. We saw several weeks back how he includes Gentiles in the genealogy of Jesus in chapter 1. He's got the wise men, these Gentiles, coming to worship Jesus in chapter 2. In chapter 12, he tells the story of a wise woman, the Gentile queen of Sheba, who came to visit Solomon and admired his wisdom, which is a foreshadowing of how other wise women will come to Jesus as the greater Solomon. And perhaps in chapter 15, you've got a fulfillment of that when you've got the story of this Canaanite woman, obviously a Gentile, who comes to Jesus to have her daughter healed by him, and she manifests amazing wisdom in that encounter. And so it's not surprising that by the time you come to the end of Matthew's gospel, we've been set up for this, Jesus now sends his apostles out to make disciples of all nations. The Gentile nations are to be discipled, even as Israel is to be discipled. And so we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation for the whole world. God's program has always been global, drawing in people from every race, tongue, tribe, and family. The true racial reconciliation our world longs for, the true racial reconciliation that our nation wants to see can only be found in one place, and that is in Christ Jesus, his worshiping church, the church that gathers to worship him. And here's another thing to notice. We see in this passage in Matthew 2 several different responses to Jesus, different ways people respond to Jesus. You've got Herod and the people of Jerusalem who show hostility to the newborn king. Why is Herod so hostile to this baby Jesus? Well, he's hostile because he wants to continue to live and rule in his own way. He wants autonomy. He wants to rule in his own way in his own wisdom. And of course that ends in ruin and disaster for him. But there are many people today who reject Jesus for just those reasons. They reject Jesus as king because they want to be their own kings. But for them, even as for Herod, that will end in ruin. 
Then you've got the priests and the scribes who show an alternative response. They are knowledgeable. They know all kinds of things about Jesus, but they are indifferent to him. They know the scriptures, where he will be born, all of that, but they cannot be bothered to go and worship the one who fulfills those scriptures. They're just indifferent. They've got knowledge, but it doesn't lead them to act. And so that too ends in ruin. But you know, there are a lot of people like that. Especially in the Bible Belt in the South. There are a lot of people like that. They know a lot of right answers. They can tell you all kinds of things about Jesus. They certainly know where Jesus was born. But nothing they know about Jesus really changes their life. Nothing they know about him changes how they live. That knowledge doesn't translate into practice. It doesn't transform and it doesn't, it doesn't translate into a transformed life. And so it does them no good. That too ends in ruin. But then there are the magi, these wise men who reveal their wisdom in coming to worship. And they bring gifts, gifts that show that they understand Jesus' identity, Jesus' mission as a priest, king, and prophet. In fact, I think their gifts reveal these three offices. They bring gold, which is priestly, because all kinds of things in the most holy place are covered with gold. It's it's a glorious environment, a priestly environment. They bring gold because they know Jesus will be a priest. They bring myrrh, which is kingly. It's used for prepping a body for burial because they know as the king he must be the one who will lay down his life for his people because that's how kings rule, by serving and suffering and dying for their people. And they bring frankincense, which is prophetic, symbolizing the prayers of God's prophets ascending into the heavens. Prophets become heavenly council members symbolized by that incense. They know Jesus will be a prophet. They worship Christ at great cost. It was not an easy journey, and those weren't cheap gifts. But they make sacrifices for Christ because they know he is worth it. They know if the king has come, we must worship him. We can do nothing else. And I would say if you do nothing else with your life, do this. Worship Jesus. Make that your priority, your overwhelming priority in life to worship Jesus every Lord's Day and indeed every day of your life. Don't be hostile to Jesus. Don't be indifferent to Jesus. Worship Jesus. That is the way of wisdom. That is where light and glory are found. Trust in him. Obey him. Give yourself to him. Give gifts to him. Join in his mission to the nations. Because that, more than anything else, is what life is all about. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.